Today's podcast is sponsored by Tommy John. Tommy John underwear moves with you thanks to breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric that has four times the stretch of competing brands. And this is Tommy John's anniversary month. So whether you're trying them for the first time or you're a longtime fan, now you can get 25% off site-wide at tommyjohn.com gold. See the website for details. This morning, we got the highly anticipated release of the CPI data for March. And the reason there was so much anticipation around this release is because March is where we initially felt the impact of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and European allies against Russia as a result of that invasion. Obviously, there was an impact immediately in energy prices and food prices, and the March CPI number is the first month where that impact is going to be felt. And so everybody is waiting to see this number. The consensus was for a 1.1% jump in the March headline CPI. That's a big number, but there were some people who thought it might even surprise to the upside. And that's why when we got the number at 1.2%, even though it was hotter than expected, it wasn't blazing hot. I think people had expected a number much hotter than that. And when it comes to the year-over-year number, that also was slightly above estimates. The consensus was for 8.4% year-over-year. The prior month, February, was 7.9 year over year. So that's a big jump from February. And we did end up coming in slightly better, or worse rather, than 8.4 at 8.5. But again, maybe there were some people who thought the number would be much worse than that. And so this was a bit of a relief that it wasn't a higher number than 8.5. Now that number, 8.5, is the biggest increase in the year-over-year CPI since 1981. So that's better than 40 years. But again, all of this is apples to oranges when you factor in that 40 years ago, we used an entirely different CPI than we use today. And as far as I can tell, we're generally missing the mark by about half, meaning that If we used the 1981 CPI to measure 2022 price increases, we probably would see a year-over-year rise of 17%, which is twice 8.5, not 8.5. So we really can't compare it to what we had during the 1970s because there's no comparison between the 1970s or 1980s CPI and what we got today. Also, excluding food and energy, this is where there was some relief because the markets had been bracing for a 0.5% increase in the so-called core, which excludes food and energy. And we ended up with just a 0.3% increase. And that was below the range of estimates, which went from 0.4 to 0.6. So that was a good number as far as the markets were concerned because the core CPI didn't go up nearly as much as thought. And the year-over-year increase was also below expectations. It was supposed to be 6.6, which would have been a little bit higher than the 6.4 from February. Instead, we came in at 6.5, so a little better, a little worse on the headline, a little better on the core, 
But overall, I guess the whisper numbers were that all these numbers would come in hot. And since they didn't, the market initially was relieved. We saw a rally in stocks. And in fact, one of the ways that you know that the markets were in fact bracing for a hotter number was that all of the bond markets hit new highs in yield overnight. From the twos all the way to the 30s, the bond market was getting clobbered in the overnight session as bond traders were bracing for a hot CPI number. And that was dragging down the S&P futures because weakness in bonds was spilling over into weakness in stocks. But then as we were getting closer and closer to the 8.30 a.m. release, the bond market was pairing its losses. Stocks were coming back. I think some of the traders who were short bonds expecting a hot number because they had a lot of gains even before the number came out, Maybe they wanted to take some of their bets down, take their profits off the table while they had them instead of actually gambling and holding through the number. And then when the number came out and it was interpreted as a benign number because it could have been worse, you got a very strong rally in the bond market. And one of the interesting things or probably the most interesting thing about the bond market rally that happened after the release is that the yield curve completely uninverted on every point. And so if you look at where bonds close today, the yields on the five-year are higher than the two-year, the yields on the 10-year are higher than the five-year, and the yield on the 30-year is higher than the 10-year by the widest margin I've seen in some time. Here is where the yields went out. Two-year yields are at two spot four one. Five-year is at two spot six nine. 10-year is at two spot seven two. And the 30-year is 2-spot-8-1. And in fact, the 30-year yield is the only yield that ended up higher on the day. Yields on 5-year and 10-year bonds took a pretty big hit on the day. So I think the significance of this uninversion of the yield curve and now having a normal yield curve, although I do think the spreads need to widen, I think the yields on the 30-year should be much higher than the yields on the 10-year. And ultimately, I think that is what is going to happen. And I think the 10-year yields should be much higher than the two-year, for example. There should be a much bigger gap between those maturities. And I think there will be. But I think what the bond market is potentially forecasting is that based on this so-called benign number, maybe the Fed won't have to hike as much as people thought. And so that's why the shorter end of the curve got an improvement because maybe the Fed won't have to jack rates up as much. But the fact that the long end did not improve, the 30-year, in fact, yields on the 30-year rose slightly as shorter maturities fell, that could indicate that the markets are starting to get the fact that inflation is going to stay around longer. And also, another possibility is that the bond market believes that the Fed is going to push the economy into recession sooner. And so the markets anticipate that the Fed won't hike rates as much because before they get to the end point of their tightening cycle, the economy would have already rolled over into recession. And so the recession will come sooner, but inflation will hang around longer. In fact, if you look at what the markets are expecting, they seem to be indicating that interest rates are going to peak in 2023 at three and a quarter percent. And 
I don't think that that's going to be the case because I think before we get to three and a quarter percent, the economy will be in recession or will be close enough to recession that the Fed ultimately backtracks from its rate hikes and in fact will even return to quantitative easing. So I don't think we'll ever get to that level. Remember, in 2018, the Fed couldn't get above two and a half percent before it had to backtrack and ultimately go back down to zero. And given how much more debt the economy has today than it had then and how much more leverage there is now, it seems to me if we couldn't take two and a half percent in 2018, we can't take two and a half percent now, let alone three and a quarter. And so the Fed is not going to be able to get rates that high before something breaks. In fact, look at the data that was released today from the Treasury Department. This has to do with the March budget deficit, which of course needs to be financed. The February budget deficit was 216.6 billion. And the consensus was for a big decline in the deficit in March, only looking for 44.8 billion in red ink. The range was from a deficit of 120 billion to a surplus of 120 billion. So there is a pretty big range of expectations with a lot of people even thinking that the Treasury would run a surplus during the month. Well, the number came out at a deficit of 192.7 billion. That is more than quadruple what the consensus forecast was for how much money the U.S. Treasury was going to have to borrow. Now, back in the day of QE, which was just a few days ago, the Fed could count on the Treasury to buy most of that $192.7 billion. Well, obviously, not only can't the Treasury count on the Fed to buy any of that $192.7 billion, but the Treasury is going to be selling billions of dollars worth of treasuries off of its own balance sheet that has to be financed in addition to that $192.7 billion, which is why I don't believe the Fed is going to be able to continue with quantitative tightening to the extent that it ever actually begins quantitative tightening because the U.S. Treasury just has too many bonds to buy and not enough buyers to step up. In fact, I think a lot of people just assume that foreign central banks are going to step in to fill the gap created by the Fed. Why? If the U.S. Federal Reserve won't buy those treasuries, why should the Bank of Japan buy them? Why should the European Central Bank buy them? They've got their own inflation problem on their hands. Why would they want to take on our inflation problem too? And in fact, if you're a foreign central bank and you know the U.S. government or the Federal Reserve rather is unloading its treasuries, why would you want to hold on to yours? Why wouldn't you want to front run that massive seller? I think the fact that we're going to be selling our treasuries and we've announced that to the world, what we've told everybody else is get out. It's like if you had a huge owner of a stock and that owner came out and said, I'm going to start selling. What if Elon Musk announced, you know, he just bought 9% of Twitter. What if he just announced that going forward, he was going to be a net seller of Twitter and he was going to be selling Twitter on a regular basis. And assuming you believed him and you own Twitter, wouldn't you just want to get rid of your shares right now thinking this guy is going to drive the price lower? I don't want to buy back in until he's completely out because he's going to be weighing on the market. So that's what I would think if I was a foreign central bank. Let me get out of the way. The Fed's going to unload all these treasuries. I want to get out first. I mean, the Fed is going to be selling slowly. 
I want to sell quickly. I want to get the higher prices while they're still around. See, the Fed is concerned. It doesn't want to dump all those treasuries on the market because it doesn't want the price to crash. Well, if you own treasuries, that's your opportunity to get out now before the Fed finishes selling. So I think all this optimism that foreigners are going to step it up is just misplaced. In fact, talking about misplaced optimism, I was watching this guy on CNBC this morning and they were interviewing him and the host pointed out that yields on the 10-year, they're above 2.7 and he was on CNBC some time ago and he predicted that the high for the 10-year would end up being somewhere between two and a quarter and two and a half. So we're already well beyond where he thought treasuries could possibly go. And she asked him, well, what do you think now? Do you think we're going to go back down to that range? And his response was absolutely. And the reason he's so confident that yields are heading back down is he said, well, if you look at the market for the last 40 years, we're so far above the mean. I forget whether it was two or three standard deviations that he said we were above the mean, but he said, that's not going to last. We're going to revert to the mean. And I expect prices to come back down to kind of where they'd been in line with the past 40 years. Well, it doesn't even dawn on this guy that maybe something has changed, that what happened over the past 40 years isn't going to continue, that that bull market is over. And so instead of looking at the last 40 years for a mean as to where yields should be, maybe you need to go back 50 years and look at where yields were in the 1970s. Maybe you have to look back to the last time we had inflation this bad. In fact, it's even worse now than it was back then to try to figure out where yields should be. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Because looking at the last 40 years of that massive bull market where you had ever declining rates of inflation is irrelevant to the time period we're in now. It's just that so many people on Wall Street refuse to recognize what has changed. And so they're still wedded in those 40 years of bond bull market where the stock market kept going up and up. We had all these low inflation rates, at least officially. I think that time period is over. And so waiting for some kind of reversion to a mean that is now irrelevant is going to cause a lot of people to lose a lot of money. You know, guys, just because it's springtime, it doesn't mean you have to spend your time hunting for your eggs. The right pair of underwear puts all your eggs in one basket and keeps them there. That's Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear. When you're wearing Tommy John's hammock pouch underwear, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. With dozens of comfortable innovations, once you've tried Tommy John's underwear, you're never going back. Innovations like an air mesh interior hammock and moisture wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands. Plus, the legs never ride up 
And Tommy John's underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for the perfect fit. That's why Tommy John's doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Fanatics that call Tommy John's hammock pouch one of the greatest inventions ever. With over 17 million pairs sold, men across America love wearing their Tommy John's. And shipping and returns are free because every pair is backed by the Tommy John's best pair you've ever worn or its free guarantee. In fact, the first time I tried on my Tommy John's, I was hooked. I love that quick release horizontal fly. And because it's Tommy John's anniversary month, whether you're trying them for the first time or you're a longtime fan, you can get 25% off site-wide right now at TommyJohn.com gold. So go to TommyJohn.com gold today to get 25% off. That's TommyJohn.com gold. See the website for details. But I want to go back and focus a little bit more on the CPI data First, let me start off by looking at the core and why so many people were excited about the core CPI coming in lower than expected. First of all, it was still up 0.3. I mean, yes, that's less than the markets expected, but if you annualize that low print, that's still 3.7% per year. That's almost 4%, which is almost double the Fed's 2% target. But now we're just talking about the core. We're not even talking about food and energy, which is the most important part of the typical household budget. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to look at the core, which, by the way, year over year is up 6.5%. That's not counting food, not counting energy. In fact, if we're blaming inflation on Putin, how can we blame the core on Putin? After all, the Ukraine situation and that war and those sanctions the effect is predominantly on food and energy because that's what's being exported out of that area. We're always talking about gas. We're talking about food, fertilizer, wheat, stuff like that. So that's all in the food and energy camp. So if that's Putin's fault, how can we also blame Putin for the core, which excludes all that stuff? And if you just look at a 6.5% increase in the core year over year, that's a big number. That's more than triple 2%. And there's no way you can blame that on Putin. And by the way, the whole idea that we should look at year over year core makes no sense whatsoever. The reason that economists started focusing on the monthly core CPI rather than the monthly headline number is because they claimed, and there's probably some truth to this, that food and energy prices tend to be very volatile in short periods of time. And so economists don't want to just jump to some conclusions about inflation just based on some monthly volatility in that particular data set. And so they like to look at the core to strip that out on a monthly basis. But when you're talking about a year-over-year time period, all that monthly volatility is smoothed out because you have 12 months to smooth it. So when you're looking at year-over-year numbers, it doesn't even make any sense to look at the year-over-year core, especially if you're going to take some solace in the fact that, oh, inflation's not so bad if we strip out food and energy over the past year. But families can't strip out food and energy. They can't survive without food and energy. When food and energy prices are up big year over year, that's not volatility. That's a trend. And you can't ignore that trend when you're trying to calculate inflation and determine whether or not you have a problem. You have a big problem. But also something that nobody is talking about, if it's Putin's fault, and because of Putin, oil prices are up and food prices are up, 
you would expect the core to go down because if people have to spend more money on food and more money on energy, and they do, they're spending a lot more money on those things, well, they would have less money left over to buy other things. Those are the other things that are part of the core. So core prices should be falling as the food and energy prices are rising. But the reason that all prices are rising is because everybody's got more money. We've got more money to buy food and energy, and we've got more money to buy everything else. Where's all that money coming from to buy all this stuff? It's coming from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is creating all the inflation in the core and in the headline. It's not Putin, and it wasn't COVID. And one other thing that nobody seems to be talking about when it comes to inflation is, okay, so everybody says the Fed is going to try to bring inflation back down to 2%. But we've just had a year where inflation was 8%, and 2022 looks like it might be even higher than that. But even if it's slightly better, let's say you get two back-to-back years, 2021, 2022, where the official CPI is up 15%. That is a huge jump in the cost of living. It may actually end up being closer to 20% over those two years. If we just go back to 2% inflation every year after that, we're just building on to that 15 to 20% increase that we never reversed. Because remember, Powell said the Fed's goal was for inflation to average 2% over time. And what Powell wanted to do was have inflation run a little bit above 2% to make up for all those years that we were below 2%. Well, you know what? We achieved his goal much quicker than expected because we didn't just get a little bit above 2%. We got way above 2%. We're at 15, 20%. So basically, if Powell is going to be true to his word, he shouldn't be targeting 2% inflation. We need to be targeting falling prices. We need prices to go down one, two, three percent a year for a few years in order to bring the average back down to two percent. Now I can imagine Powell saying, oh no, we can't have that. We can't have falling prices. That would be terrible. Well, why would that be terrible? I mean, prices just went way up. If they went down a little bit, how would that be a disaster? Right? No, Powell wants to make sure that whatever price increases are experienced over the last couple of years, that they never go away, that prices never come back down even a little. Even after they go way up, Powell wants to make sure that they keep going up from there. But of course, that proves how ridiculous this whole thing is because inflation will have averaged way over 2% for the entire period of time going back to whenever it fell below 2%, which again proves what I was saying all along, that the whole thing was a lie. There was no reason to try to get the inflation average up. We didn't have to make up for years where inflation was too low. That was just a ruse. That was just to cover up the real reason for the Fed monetary policy. And that was to prop up the government, to prop up asset bubbles, to keep this whole bubble economy going. And for those reasons, that's why the Fed is going to give up its inflation fighter. That's why it's never really going to get into the ring, although it's bluffing and talking tough as if it's going to kick inflation's butt but it has no intention of doing that. It has no ability to do that because if it did, it would have already done it. We wouldn't be in this predicament with inflation this high and interest rates still low if the Fed could actually do anything about it. In fact, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that this is the highest inflation we've had since 1981. Well, do you know where interest rates were in 1981? 
Oh, well, that's where the Fed funds rate peaked at 20%. 20%. We're at one quarter of 1% now. We were at 20% then. That was the end of inflation because the Fed had got interest rates all the way up to 20%. Where was the inflation rate in 1981? 13.5%. So we had 6.5% real interest rates. Where are real interest rates now? Well, inflation is 8.5 and interest rates are 0.25. We've got negative eight and a quarter. Is inflation going to peak when interest rates are at negative eight and a quarter? When it took positive six and a half to get inflation to peak in 1981? And of course, if we are measuring prices accurately, as I said earlier, we've got 17% inflation, which means we have negative 16.75 real interest rates. I mean, inflation is far more likely to accelerate than come down when you have a negative interest rate that high. You know, instead of being at the end of an inflationary period, we're just beginning. All these guys that are out there celebrating these numbers because they think this is peak inflation. This is the end. Based on what evidence would this be peak inflation? With interest rates this low, with the Fed having waited so long to try to fight inflation, with inflation never being as far out of the bottle as it is right now, the Fed never being this far behind the curve, why would anybody assume that the high is in for inflation? It's like all these guys who are stuck in a stock and the stock is going down and every day they think the bottom is in, the bottom is in, and they want to keep on buying and the stock keeps going lower and lower and lower. They still don't get it. They are trading on hope. All the people who are saying inflation is peaked They're just saying that because they hope it's peaked, because their entire investment strategy is predicated on inflation peaking. They don't even want to conceive of a possibility where we are entering into an inflationary decade where inflation is going to get worse, not better. In fact, let's look at some of the numbers from inside the CPI. Groceries up 10% year over year in March versus 8.6% from February. And if you break it down, cereals and baked products were up 9.4%. Meat, poultry, fish, and eggs were up 13.7% from last year. Dairy products up 7%. Fruits and vegetables up 8.5%. Those are some big increases. They dwarf the increase in wages. So again, people are spending a lot more money eating. They have less money to spend on other things. Look at airfares. They jumped 10.7% year over year. And again, I don't think the increase in airfares really covers a lot of what's going on when you look at the reduction in the quality of service. I think they should have to adjust that higher. You know, another example that I just was thinking about recently because my mother was trying to watch the Masters on our cable system and she couldn't find it and she didn't realize that we don't have CBS because I have Dish and Dish no longer carries CBS because CBS raised their prices and Dish didn't want to pay it so Dish dropped CBS. They did the same thing with HBO. Not too long ago, they dropped HBO. I had a package on Dish. I had all the premium channels. And first I lost my HBO. Then I lost CBS. So what did I have to do? I had to subscribe to HBO Max, pay extra for that. Then I had to buy CBS All Access to get CBS. So I don't know if my cable bill went up for Dish 
but I got less. And then I had to go and I had to buy these other things that I used to get as part of my dish. So I ended up paying a lot more, but I don't know if any of that kind of stuff makes it into the CPI. Now, for me, it's no big deal. These are small amounts of money to pay for these services. So I I don't even care. But I know a lot of people earn a lot less money than I do, and they care. This makes an impact on their budget when they're living paycheck to paycheck and inflation makes those paychecks smaller. In fact, look at rent. I mean, the rent now is finally starting to move, at least in the CPI. Now, in the real world, rents are moving a lot faster than in a fantasy world of government inflation numbers. But rents are now up, or owner's equivalent rent, I guess, is 5% now year over year versus 4.7 from February. That is the highest since May of 1991. And we're going a lot higher because the real costs are more like 20%. So eventually, maybe owner's equivalent rent will will catch up. The only thing that was down were used cars. They were down 3.8% in the month from where they were, but they're still up like 35 or something percent year over year. And I think that we're going to revert to price increases for used cars maybe as soon as April. It's because I think the trend is still going to be up in those used car prices. But these are big numbers. But of course, they're probably actually bigger because remember, these are the numbers after the government massages them with hedonics and substitution. I don't even know how they do it, but I talk a lot about this video I did in 2013 and you can see it up on my YouTube channel. The title of the video is Inflation Propaganda Exposed. And one of the things I did in this video is I looked at the price of newspapers and magazines in 2013 and compared them to the prices of those identical newspapers and magazines 10 years earlier in 2003. Because according to the government, the price of newspapers and magazines over that 10-year time period increased by about 30%. And so I just wanted to check and see how accurate the government's numbers were because it's really easy. You can just look up on the internet a copy of one of those magazines or newspapers from 10 years ago and see what the price was. And so I compared about 20 of the most highly circulated newspapers and magazines in the country And I just compared the price on the cover in 2013 to the price on the cover in 2003, right? A very fair comparison. And what I found was that the average increase of that entire basket wasn't 30%, it was 130%. So the government was so far off what actually happened. Now, I don't know how the CPI did this, how you put these prices into the CPI and these really low ones came out the other end, But that's where the government does its magic. It makes price increases disappear. And so I'm sure what Americans are actually paying for their groceries is actually a much bigger increase than what the government is claiming in the official CPI numbers, even though what they're claiming is still big. That's why the actual number is probably close to the 17% I mentioned earlier, if we were to use the more honest CPI that we used in 1981, the last time we had an inflation rate this bad. But of course, back then, the Fed was aggressively fighting inflation with 20% interest rates. And of course, the U.S. economy was in much better shape. Oh, and by the way, we were already in a recession in 1981. Our recession hadn't even started. We were in the worst recession since the Great Depression because the Fed was, in fact, fighting inflation in 1981 to try to bring it down. 
Our current Fed isn't fighting inflation. They're still fueling inflation. Even if they give us this 50 basis point rate hike in May, rates will still be less than 1%. An interest rate of under 1% with inflation of 8.5% is going to make inflation worse. How do you fight inflation with an accommodative monetary policy? But here's the problem. It's accommodative for inflation, but not the economy because the economy is so addicted to debt that if the Fed doesn't stimulate the economy enough, even if it still stimulates it, it's not enough to prevent it from going into recession. So yes, if the Fed succeeds in raising interest rates for 2 or 3%, from the perspective of the economy, that's tight money. But from the perspective of inflation, it's still easy money. So inflation is going to go higher as the economy sinks lower into recession. Now, when these better than expected inflation numbers, and again, better meaning not as bad as they could have been, we had this relief rally, markets, Dow up, S&P up, NASDAQ up, everything rose, including gold. You know, gold jumped up about 20 bucks. That it got as high as I think 1976, up about $22. But then everything sold off, which made sense to me because there was really no good news in the inflation numbers. And the market sold off. Some of the tech stocks got hit the hardest. Some of the former darlings like Applied Material made a new 52-week low, but a lot of the big tech stocks were lower on the day. The NASDAQ finished off about 0.35 of a percent, but it did have a pretty big rally, and we closed on the lows of the day. Pretty much the same thing for the S&P down 0.34%, and the Dow Jones down about 0.26%. Not on the lows of the day, but a negative day in that all these indexes gapped higher and then closed lower near the lows on the day. I think the markets look weak. They looked weak going into the close because I don't care how much lipstick you want to put on this pig. It's still a pig. It's a bad situation for stocks. The opposite for gold. In fact, interestingly enough, they tried to sell gold off, but they couldn't do it. Gold ended up rallying. It closed off the highs, but it recovered its midday sell-off. Gold stocks too. Some of the gold stocks were very strong today, hitting 52-week highs, but they didn't close near the highs, but they still closed up with solid gains on the day. The charts are looking very, very good, not only on gold and silver. Silver up 25 cents today, 25.32. Silver stocks extremely strong today relative to gold stocks, but the charts of the indexes and the individual miners look very, very good. I think we're very close to an explosive move up in the gold market. I know I've been saying that, and the charts continue to support that viewpoint. And in fact, the market has been creeping higher the entire time I have been saying that. And I do expect the creep to accelerate into a sprint before too long. But before that acceleration occurs, it still gives people more time to continue buying these stocks. Oil had a strong day today, back above $100 a barrel. I think we closed at around 150 up $6.5 per barrel. Again, the oil chart is looking very, very good. Yes, we're off the $130 spike high, but that high has simply set a target that we're going to take out. This is a long-term bull market in all commodities, not just oil. Across the board, the entire commodity spectrum is going to be moving up, not just because we have all this inflation, but because we don't have the supply. And the supply is not simply because of COVID or because of Putin. It's because of a decade or more of underinvestment in capacity because the companies that produce all these commodities didn't get all the capital. Where did the capital go? Went into tech. 
right? It went into the hot sectors of the market. I mean, think of all the capital we wasted on crypto-related companies. I mean, they don't produce anything. They just waste energy, waste resources, all of those resources. Maybe they could have gone into agriculture. They could have gone into mining industrial metals or they could have got into oil and gas, but no, they were wasted on cryptocurrency. And by the way, if you're all excited about cryptocurrency, Coinbase closed at a new all-time low today. In fact, it closed below $150. This is the lowest the stock has been ever since it IPO'd. But obviously, this is a forward-looking measure of where Bitcoin or other cryptos are likely to go and Coinbase is telling you that they're going lower. In fact, this morning, when Bitcoin managed to get back above 40,000 because it had broken below it in the overnight session, and as I'm recording this, we're back below it. We're at 39,700. But early this morning, we were back above it. And I remember the big story, according to CNBC, was Bitcoin retakes 40,000. I mean, that's the story. What about Bitcoin down 16% over the last two weeks or Bitcoin down 38% year over year? Isn't that the real story? No, the story that CNBC wanted to tell is, oh, Bitcoin's back above 40,000 as if that's good news. And of course, it didn't stay above 40,000. Bitcoin also reversed today with the NASDAQ. It ended up finishing near the lows of the day. It completely reversed that rally it had on the lower than expected inflation numbers because it doesn't matter. This is just one month. These are still high numbers and peak inflation is nowhere in sight. This is pure wishful thinking on the part of investors that we've reached the highs. In fact, they said that before. This is not the first time people have claimed that inflation has peaked. Go back and look at the inflation numbers that were coming out last year. Month after month, we were getting bad numbers. And almost every month, some expert was saying that this is the peak. We've reached the peak in inflation. Why? Just because it's bad? Just because the numbers are high? They've got to go down? Now, yes, at some point, we might get a pullback in the rate of increase. But even if inflation goes from 8.5% to 5.5%, what the hell does that mean? There's no relief there. That just means that prices that went up by 8.5% are now going to go up by another 5.5%. So if you had a hard time affording them when they were up 8.5%, you're going to have an even harder time affording them when they're up 14%. Because what we know for a fact is no matter how much prices go up, they ain't never coming back down. They're just going to add to the pain because whatever increase we have, It's just going to be built on top of that in the next year. So even if we get some relief on the rate of increase, we don't get any relief on the price. In fact, if prices are too high now and they go up at all, that just makes the problem worse. Now, yes, wages could keep rising, but they're not rising as fast as prices. So people who have wages are still falling behind. But what about all the people that don't have wages? What about the people who are retired? They have no way of offsetting this increase in the cost of living. And so for them, it's just pure pain. And the bad news for them is as bad as it is now, it's going to get a whole lot worse. That's why a lot of the people who currently don't have any incomes because they're retired, if they want to keep eating, if they want to keep buying energy, they're not going to stay retired. They're going to enter the labor force. So I guess that's going to help take care of some of the labor shortage when a lot of the people who are now not in the labor force because they've retired enter the labor force because they no longer can afford to stay retired. 
The dollar had a strong day today against European currencies in the yen. The dollar index closing above 100, 100 spot 30. Now that's the only market that's defying what I believe should be happening. It makes sense to me that bonds are going down. It makes sense to me that gold is going up. It makes sense to me that tech stocks are going down. What doesn't make sense is the dollar going up. That's the only thing that is not behaving according to my expectations of the market. And I have to believe that what's happening in the dollar is the outlier. When everything else is conforming to what I think, when everything else is going according to my playbook, we have this one outlier in the U.S. dollar. I think this is the dollar's last hurrah. I think a lot of it has to do with the perception that the dollar is a safe haven. You've got this war going on. You've got Russia, Ukraine, the sanctions. You've got the idea in people's heads that higher interest rates are dollar bullish. So I think the dollar bull market is lingering longer than the bond bull market was or the stock bull market. But ultimately, I expect the dollar to come in line. I don't expect all the other markets to now reverse and stocks to go up, bonds to go up, gold to go down, commodities to go down. I don't think everything that is going according to my script is now going to reverse to conform with the one outlier being the U.S. dollar. I think it's the U.S. dollar that's going to reverse and confirm to everything else that is already playing out pretty much exactly as I scripted it, even if the timetable is later, all these things are occurring later than I first thought. They are occurring and I am being validated by all those markets. I'm just not being validated yet by the U.S. dollar, but ultimately I'm confident that I will be. (music) 